Hello everyone and welcome to yet another episode of Cartelian Clamor, the podcast where we, a bunch of Stockholm cartel people, will sit down for approximately 45 minutes maybe and talk about games, role-playing games and things related to them. Um, and today we are four people here. It's me, Johan Nord, who is the art and design person for Mercborg and Cyborg and a bunch of other games, and uh, three other people. And the two of those, you have never been on the podcast before, and so I uh, welcome welcome you here. <laughs> First up is uh, Christian. Yes, I'm Christian Salen, the other Christian of Stockholm Cartel, and I do words and stuff for, well, Cyborg mainly, and some other adventures, etc. And uh, the other new member is Fredrik. So I'm Fredrik, so I'm one of those people who's not really involved in making role-playing games directly. I'm kind of the language kind of guy, I guess, proofreading, those kind of things, discussing video games, uh, you know, everything and everything related to role-playing. So. And uh, Jonas here, uh, back uh, uh, with this episode as well, ready to uh, talk uh, a lot of different uh, topics and uh, bring my general uh, energy and uh, structure uh, to the conversation. <laughs> Much the needed. moderator. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> and we actually have an agenda this episode as well, which is very helpful. Um, and so, with one with one of the one of the points crossed out already, you know, we can, we can jump on to two of them. Yeah, intro as well. That's great. We can actually jump on to the, the next one. Which is a new, new kind of thing. Well, not really a new uh, segment, but uh, a bit broader than what we did last time when we all gave you a bunch of um, album recommendations. So this time it's more about like general media tips, I guess, from us. Things that we are reading, listening to, watching, whatever that we can recommend. So who want to go first? Anyone have anything good? I can uh, speak about uh, a movie I rewatched recently, which is uh, which is a favorite of mine. Uh, it's uh, Onibaba in Japanese. Uh, I think it's the same title uh, in English. It's called Gruppen in Swedish, which is a great name, The Pit. Um, it's uh, a historical drama, sort of erotic thriller, sort of horror story. And it's uh, set uh, during a civil war in the 14th century Japan. Uh, it's about uh, uh, two women, um, uh, a mother and her daughter-in-law. Uh, the, they uh, eke out a living, uh, stripping, uh, uh, flee- uh, killing, uh, fleeing warriors from the civil war and stripping uh, their bodies uh, for parts and uh, selling them. And uh, one day, uh, the, a friend of uh, the son of the mother and the husband of uh, the younger woman returns telling them that uh, the son slash husband uh, has been killed uh, during the war. Uh, and what ensues is a, a story where um, everything is very ambiguous. There is a perhaps supernatural element that is maybe there or not there. It's really hard to tell. Uh, the morals are sort of ambiguous uh, as well, uh, and uh, 
It's also very unclear uh, who is telling the truth about uh, events that has transpired and such. Unreliable narrator kind of thing. Uh, sort of. Um, so you're never really sure about uh, what truly is going on and if the supernatural is really supernatural. Uh, and that is something that I really enjoy uh, in uh, media in general and also something that is quite rare but it has been very interesting when it has shown up in role-playing. It's uh, something that is really hard to m- m- make uh, work in role-playing games because you sort of have to have the supernatural in the rules uh, or in the campaign if if the campaign is uh, supernatural. But uh, a really cool campaign that you ran once, um, Christian, uh, I'm not sure if you knew if the campaign was supernatural or not, the supernatural elements uh, that we as uh, players and characters experienced in the campaign. And uh, it's th- that is a really interesting thing to think about in a role-playing session, like, is the supernatural actually supernatural? And how, how can we portray it uh, together at the table to make us all unsure? Because that really adds... Uh, cool, mysterious uh, layer uh, to the horror and the supernatural that uh, is easy to lose if the supernatural is just level drain monsters or things like that. Level drain is very horrific, though. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> you're totally right. <laughs> no, that's really, that's really a cool thing, actually. Like, how can, you, how can you hide that? And how can you, like, time the, um, the revelation or the, like... It, not, not sure if that's the word, but like, like when the players um, uncover the truth, like, so that they don't do it the first session or never, or maybe maybe never is is fine as well. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting if if you could if there is you could watch movies and get inspiration from that. I was thinking of The Shining by you know Kubrick's classic horror movie, and up to a certain point in that movie, it's basically everything can be explained like rationally, like what is happening, like this maybe this guy moved this thing or maybe this happened and maybe he was you know he was drinking and those kind of things. So like everything could be explained away up to like one point in the movie when some someone opens a door and that's the, right. that's yeah. that's the thing that kind of sort of sets the like now we're in the realm of the supernatural and it's uh, it's kind of interesting thought to, to be to be thinking about that whether it could be employed in uh, role playing I mean I guess you could do exactly that in role playing games as well like everything is quite mundane but mysterious up to the point when they open the door or they do the thing and then it's just you know all hell breaks loose that that was kind of what happened in the campaign that Jonas was was talking about. Uh, that there were hints at something else going on uh, and so on, but they they never got to that door and never opened it. So it was just, I mean, it was magic rituals taking place. But if they were real or not, uh, if there was actual magic, uh, they never found out. Uh, and it actually didn't matter because, yeah. It was a revolution, anyway. And it's, I mean, it's perfect. Eh? It's, it's a door that you open. That's the thing, <laughs> yes. right? I mean, it's, it's almost too too on, much on the nose, but I, it kind of works anyway. It's like you open the door to the supernatural and bam, yeah. there it's it is. Like that, that were like a lever or a button that you push. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was just like a like an elevator, like a descent into hell yeah. kind of thing going on there as well. Yeah. 
And I think that in most roping games, uh, it doesn't hurt to be really on the nose because everything else will be misunderstood and mistaken yeah. for for everything else. Um, so, what's that thing? Hurts. There's like a saying where like you should have four clues or something, and if there's a yeah. if there's an investigatory yeah. mystery, like always, like yeah, spread a lot of clues out because players will miss stuff and, and do yeah. other shit. And, and they or, will, or yeah. they will obsess endlessly about something that is that's yeah. not a clue. That's the thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh yes. Okay, great. I actually I can jump on and take my uh, recommendation, which is not uh, it, it, it's not a fiction fictional thing. It's a very nerdy thing because I am a book nerd and I bought two books, but they're all in the same sort of release, <clears throat> and they're all about making books. So they're books about books and now i'm gonna do this thing again where i'm holding up books in front of the camera that we're not going to show to people listening to the pod but these are like there's are two very narrow books they're called um the book cover and the book block and they're basically like instruction manuals on how to build a book in like all the different parts and all the different ways you can bind books and what you have to think about when it comes to like paper um like grain direction um what different kinds of cover solutions you can have and what that does to your documents and to the reading experience and everything very good to have as like a reference at the at your table when you're working or at the desk maybe um and i got these from um i think it's like a portuguese company that makes them and i saw them in an, in an instagram ad that i fell for immediately so yeah extremely like super targeted advertising that worked perfectly on me and i was like yeah i have to get get these but uh, i've actually i've used them a lot and i've referenced them a lot so if you are making books you could check them out and i guess we'll put a link in like the show notes if you want to read or listen or watch any of these tips that we make great yeah, so um, my, I'm going on, I just started my vacation, so I might as well uh, recommend something work-related to everybody else who's stuck at work. So if you haven't watched Severance on uh, the TV series on Apple TV+, Plus, I heartily recommend it. It's an excellent TV series. It's uh, one of those series that is it's really visually appealing, I feel. It has this awesome kind of 60s, 80s kind of retro futurism going on, uh, which I really like. Uh, it has a kind of a mystery story going on as well. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like a lost style mystery, where it's like, what, what is going on in this weird company that they work at? Uh, and if you haven't heard about it. it it's a kind of um, a story about people who work for this company who produces something uh, possibly it's extremely top <laughs> secret everything uh did they not really allowed to know anything uh but sort of the thing with the whole series is that when they leave work they remember nothing uh they oh. their memories are severed so <clears throat> they essentially become become two people uh, the work people and the like off work people or in the parlance of uh, the TV series the your outie and your innie uh, <laughs> cool. oh, yeah so and uh, it raises a lot company. of yeah it raises a lot of good <laughs> questions about like how much of our time is spent at work and how work sort of uh, infiltrate our daily lives and has a kind of 
almost explicit anti-work agenda, which I kind of surprising for an American TV show. It's created and direct, mostly directed by Ben Stiller. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I, it was a long time since I saw a t- TV series that was that just captured me. So I yeah, that's I really recommend it. I so, love the premise of it, and I get really inspired. I'm thinking like I should do like a cyborg uh, adventure or something about that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It, sounds, it, it could really, it could really tie into some cyber, cyberpunk, you know, corporations owning you and those kind of things. Definitely. Yeah. But I, I think it's, but I think it's definitely a strength of it is that it doesn't sort of use that kind of aesthetic, uh, but no. it actually kind of does its own thing. But f- for sure, yeah. I, I, someone pitched it to me as a black comedy, and uh, that really isn't the case. It's much more about the mystery and the drama and the thriller kind of thing. So I kind of fell off just because it hit me in the wrong way because I thought it was supposed to be something else than it was. It does have a little bit of an absurdist comedy yeah. streak in it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I found it kind of funny at times. I don't know. Maybe at times, just, just yeah. Just like yeah. synced with me. Yeah. Yeah, I don't uh, know. but that wasn't the main part of it, at least not for the first two or three episodes that I watched. No, three. Uh, well, if we stay on the cyberpunk part, I, I actually just finished rereading Burning Chrome, the William Gibson uh, short story uh, collection anthology uh, co-written with uh, a couple of other people, or some of them are co-written with a, uh, a lot of other people. And it's stuff written in the early 80s, um, mostly, uh, including Jean Mnemonic and uh, the titular uh, Burning Chrome and also some uh, kind of nice space stories for the for the Death in Space crowd, actually. Uh, some of them being really close to Death in Space, I think, or, or could be used for it, um, uh, especially if you include Russians in your death in space, I guess. Um, really, the, the, I knew I liked it before, but uh, it's kind of surprising to me how well it still works, uh, especially Jonah Mnemonic and Burning Chrome, uh, and and how much how early uh, William Gibson set the the entire cyberpunk nomenclature or, or dictionary using uh, like console cowboys for for hackers and, and uh, the the matrix and cyberspace and so on uh, a lot of it is even if it's it's either from burning chrome uh, or the stories in there or uh, made popular by that and, and later books so really nice and, and still still amazing uh, actually i actually haven't seen john in the mnemonic Oh, it's really yeah, yeah. It's a confession here. I have to make. I have to watch it. You 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 have to watch it just for the, I mean, just for everything, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but especially the dolphin. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of dolphins going on in the, in the cyborg Discord yeah. as well. It, yeah, exactly. There's references yeah. that I don't pick up on, but no, <laughs> it's. Uh, the, I mean, I, I shouldn't call Johnny Mnemonic the movie great, but but you have to watch it. I need to rewatch it yeah. because I haven't seen it in, in maybe twenty years or something. Uh, yeah. And also, music-wise, um, I've been listening to uh, Kelly Lee Owens, uh, a Welsh singer-songwriter who recently uh, released a record together with a Norwegian noise artist whose name I, I sadly forget. 
Uh, and it's singer, songwriter, pop with a noise and industrial hint, let's call it hint, or, or ambience, which is I just find really great car music, I guess. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> and, and also the the family doesn't object too much, so, so it works. So this is what happens when you get a car. Yeah. I, I mean, it used to be uh, subway music, uh, and I think it's kind mm. of the same thing. You know, the the watching outside on, on the uh, watching out the yeah. window and, and see the rain pouring down or something like that. That's uh, that kind of music. I'm not allowed to play music when I drive cars anymore, at least not on work, because I. Once when I when we went uh, between two meetings and I was the driver, I put on some um, sun uh, <laughs> because I thought I, mean, I thought that was like ambient, simple uh, like light listening. Uh, one of my coworkers actually said, "Yeah," but she said that she she felt like um, uh, car sick afterwards, like she was actually about to. <laughs> And yeah. I just, I mean, she didn't say anything for the whole like 30 minute ride. So I don't know. But you can, <laughs> been... you can kind of understand her in a way, or at least, right, yeah, no, at least like if, if you listen, like if you listen to like Pyroclast, for example, like the entire mm. album with a pair of like headphones and you, and like the record ends and you take the headphones off and you kind of like, it's kind of weird. You you kind of like sidestepped out of reality almost. You're yeah. Just like out of sync with the rest of the world. It's like it does something to your brain. So <laughs> I can kind of see it. But yeah. Yeah. This was the, the other album, the album before that. I can't remember the name. Was Schleipner's Last Breath or First Breath or whatever was the first track of that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, really good. It And especially if you, if you put on Son and you, or as I've also been listening to recently, Marisbo's. The animal animal liberation uh, until no cage and or every cage is empty or whatever it's called uh, fantastic Japanese banger uh, but if you put the like the volume if you lower the volume because you need to take a call or something or just want to yeah. talk to someone and you forget you have music on and you start driving <laughs> and you're like my car is making weird sounds and you can't really <laughs> figure out if, is this the music or or, or something else yeah. fantastic speaking of otherworldly experiences <laughs> uh, yes. i think that's a pretty good time to jump into <clears throat> Uh, the main topic of this episode, and uh, I guess if you have seen the episode title, you can probably guess what we're going to talk about. Uh, but this is our deep dive into what has occupied a lot of our time uh, this spring, and that is the video game Elden Ring. Dum -dum. For a while there, we were cat Elden Ring. That was pretty much the only thing that we did, it felt like. It kind of kind of took over the entire Discord channel. Yeah. It's just like, have you seen this thing? Have you seen this? Oh, oh my god, you have to see this thing. Yeah. Where are you guys now? What level are you? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. How the hell do you get that kind of? Where do I find this weapon? Uh, yeah, yeah. But that, but that's like to to get the discussion going there. I mean, I think that's one of the most like, nicest thing about that game. Is that it's like kind of you could all get together around that game and explore things together. I mean, obviously, it's designed that way in the sense that you leave people leave messages for each other and so on. 
but you, you, we all we also got this kind of micro community within the cartel uh, surrounding Elden Ring. I thought that was really nice. It was a nice sort of gaming experience which you don't really often get. No, I agree. I think it was nice because I'm not really a Soulsborne player. I've tried a few of them. I tried Dark Souls 2 and Bloodborne and I've noped the fuck out of both of them. And I decided that I hated that kind of game. But Elden Ring, uh, for some reason, just, uh, you know, I don't know, it just clicked on me. And I liked it after a while. I hated it at first, uh, as our chat logs will, will you know, say. But but your so. initial hate story is nothing compared to Jonas. <laughs> Jonas' <laughs> amazing journey. Yeah, T- yes, tell us about really, that. In a way, Shortly. you should really t- tell, tell you about this Yeah, you should. <laughs> uh, so much like nowhere I had tried the other game, some of the other games earlier and uh, just decided that they were not for me. Uh, but I ca- got caught up in, in the hype around this game and started playing and... Uh, uh, the first thing that happened is that I don't uh, understand um, the whole you should go here hints uh, that uh, <laughs> the game provides you. So I just go off in the wrong <laughs> wrong direction. Uh, I find uh, a temple submerged somewhat in water and decide that this looks like an early game uh, adventure locale. I should go and explore here. Uh, some rats I, and everything. Yes, I kill some rats, which is the expected, like, rats in a cellar is the expected first adventure in uh, a lot of role-playing games and video games and such. I kill the rats, I open a chest, and instead of getting rewarded with some cool item, I get teleported into a shack. Uh, everything uh, one-shots me with... Uh, uh, missiles that follow me when I run. I have no idea where to go, and uh, I haven't been introduced to the fast travel system, so I don't even understand that there is a fast travel system in the game. Uh, and uh, I was pretty ready to put the game down after those <laughs> 30 minutes, but uh, uh, I got out of that cave, and uh, somehow the view uh, that uh, I was th- that uh, I was greeted with when I finally escaped uh, from that prison uh, was so impressive that I decided to play a bit more. And uh, now I think I have played maybe like 350 or more hours of From Software games since then. It's basically what I do now. <laughs> <laughs> because, because since since finishing uh, Elden Ring, you you went back to Demon Souls, right? Yeah, first I did Demon Souls and uh, found that to be really quirky and interesting. Uh, finished uh, Sekiro, uh, followed by Dark Souls, then Dark Souls Two, and now I'm like the first big boss into Dark Souls 3, and I will probably play Bloodborne after this, uh, because then yeah. I'm out of games to play. <laughs> you, you, I mean, you're 100% going to play Bloodborne. You already <laughs> there's, no, there's no doubt about that. It's not even a question, right? No. One of us. One of us. One of us. Do you, feel like, do you feel like you playing like Elden Ring and getting to learn that game made it easier for you to jump back into the old games? Absolutely. Uh, part of it is that when they get to Elden Ring they have tried so many things in their other games and they have used a lot of tricks and enemies and uh, uh, 
design some things that they put basically every good idea they had uh, into Elden Ring. So when I played the other games, I had seen a lot of the ideas. So it was almost like when like you you play maybe a newer role-playing game and then you go back to the older games or when you read modern fantasy novels and go back to like the uh, old school fantasy scientification novels from from the early last century and you see like oh okay i see where all this came from and how it gelled together to this complete product so it was definitely a lot easier and uh, i had sort of gotten all the skills i needed to play the games without getting too upset Uh, there are of course a lot of upsetting things in these games uh, the Swordmaster <laughs> uh, and f- uh, the final boss of Sekiro is... I, I, I mean, I sat down for four hours and I had like <laughs> toilet breaks and snack breaks. But yeah, that's what I did that day, basically. <laughs> but then again, the final boss of Sekiro is like one of the greatest video game bosses of all time. Yeah, I, it's I, I feel. the best. It has to be the best one. Yeah, it's good. I mean, and it's very, I think it's a very inspiring game if we go back to talking to Elden Ring specifically, because I noticed that after I've been playing that for a while, like the way that I draw and the the art that I make, it started to look a bit different. Like it started to look, uh, I get so inspired by Elden Ring and the whole like visual experience of that game. And also I think, you know, just thinking about like game design and adventure design, it has really um it, it really you know came with a lot of good ideas and uh, um like things that i hadn't considered before uh, and i guess we'll be talking a bit about that this episode there's so much monster design uh, that is just amazing maybe especially in the earlier games but also in in elden ring uh, that you at least i don't really notice when i play the game because i'm too busy being stressed out and uh, and looking at something's uh, right knee or something when you hit it uh, but it, but if you actually look at the monsters and if you see what what they are made of uh, i mean the first major boss of uh, of elden ring um, or the the two in the in the castle uh, with the grafted stuff and and extra limbs mm. and and so on it's if you just describe it shortly or, or you don't actually go into like actually look at it, uh, you you can see it as, oh, it's a big dude and it's kind of got some kind of monster parts. But if you actually look and see what it's made of and so on, it becomes so much <laughs> creepier. Uh, and, and I discovered parts of that through like TV tropes. Uh, and their page for like Nightmare Fuel, which featured uh, plenty of examples from from the Dark Souls game, and uh, and it's just reading about the monsters made me scared of them uh, when I went back to play them uh, because I already finished the game by then. But uh, it's fantastic design; that it's so amazing, and it's kind of a shame that you sometimes spend more time looking at their feet um, uh, when it comes to the bigger yeah. monsters, but. Uh, yeah, amazing monster design. Oh, yeah, it's, it's just so fantastic that how they tie those monsters into the world. Uh, in the sense that, it's, I mean, they, you look at the, the monster with the, it has sort of like flailing limbs and grafted things on it and so on. And then you read about it and there's a reason for why it looks like that. And there's mm, a reason yeah. that particular monster is in that particular place, like in that 
part of the world uh, b- because it wouldn't make sense in any other location. So every like every monster design is tied to location, has a kind of a backstory, uh, and you might not notice it when you're playing or like might consciously not. Not, well you know you, know, you can miss it <laughs> right? you can miss not. lots of things you can miss you can but i think you sort of unconsciously notice it because it because it fits together if we if we like uh, take this in like tabletop role playing game terms maybe this is like the 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 prepping that the gm can do or like the lore behind the adventure and then what the players see is just fragments of that and just just parts of that but it, you know, there is sort of a logic behind it that aren't um, evident. There is, it's not like something that you notice right away. And and I think it, I think it's it, it's it's important actually to to have some kind of logic behind the things that you place in an adventure for a tabletop role playing game. Because even though players might not like notice it immediately or the, it, it just makes more sense to them you like it feels more cohesive as a world and this is this is part of the reason why i don't like like crowdsourced uh, 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 random tables that much it, it can be great for for inspiration and so on but if you're going to use them at the table as a random encounter uh, table or something i think find it much more interesting to make a much smaller table where like this for this dungeon or or for this place these are the kind of creatures or traps or treasures that you can find um and sometimes, of course, you can throw in some something random. Uh, but if you're doing, a, let's say, a crypt, uh, having undead and some rats and bandits works. But if you throw in well, alien space gods, and that's the yeah. only kind of alien space god you have there, and it doesn't really fit with the rest of the theme, you can make that interesting. But if you also throw in a time-traveling bear from, bear from space or something, it just makes yeah. it gone so in a way that i really have to be in the mood to to like and uh, yeah i was just about to say how like in role-playing games maybe it's easier to get away with a less prep because you can sort of riff at the table and come up with like why is it like this in a way that you can't in a video game but like like you're saying like it, it it's just so much more work to do if you roll something, okay, it's a time-traveling bear all of a sudden down here. Like, why? Why is it? Maybe you can make it work, but it's so much harder if, uh, you know. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's like this. you have to have a strong theme and a strong, like, vision, artistic vision, I guess, uh, to make, you know, crowdsourced stuff work better. This makes me uh, think uh, about storytelling in a sandbox. Uh, Elden Ring is, of course, a very sandboxy game. You have a lot of freedom in how you move around in the game. Uh, and But there is still story, and or stories rather, that the creators uh, want to tell, but they are not forcing uh, that on you. And I think that is uh, one of the hard parts um, in, in like role-playing game history has been how do I combine my vision and the story that I want to tell with a medium that is so collaborative and free? Uh, yeah. That's why we got the railroady uh, adventures of uh, the 80s in, uh, and 90s in particular, 
Um, and also, like, there, there's an inherent conflict between the storytelling and the sandboxing. But I think Elden Ring so- is, is really good at um, uh, so- solving that problem. So there are a lot of stories to be told that are written and that are uh, compelling if you find them. Uh, but the sandbox uh, itself is designed so that you can discover these stories without them being forced upon you or forcing you to act uh, in a certain way. And I think that is something that you really can apply at the gaming table. Uh, so when you are designing your sandbox, maybe you have these NPCs with these really compelling uh, backstories and uh, things that they uh, and the goals that they uh, want to achieve. And maybe you can even track them separately, like um, like Elden Ring does, sort of uh, parallel to what happens to the players and the and their characters, uh, and then they can like meet them again and sort of follow these storylines uh, without you having to force the players to act uh, in a specific way just because you have a story you want to tell. Uh, but isn't this kind of what like factions are in most of the hex crawls or the wilderness, you know, adventures? Like you have an open world sandboxy game, but you also have a bunch of factions, and these are stuff that they will do unless the players intervene in somehow. And so whenever they encounter them, you know, maybe something has happened, you know, alliances have been broken or or, or made, or uh, you know, there's been progress within the, the factions. I think that's that's really important to make the game feel alive and the world feel alive. I think that's one part uh, you can do, but also like you can take even more direct um, cues from from Elden Ring and just look at. Uh, in some cases, you will find you will find the factions and you find the factions battling each other. But uh, like simple things, there's something happening here. It's it's not just a castle with some monsters in it. Mm. It's a castle being under siege by monsters in in one case, for example. Uh, and also, you have the great um, and I don't think um, not used enough in, in, in tabletop games changing of the map thing because when you reach a certain point in, in Elden Ring, one part of the map changes uh, and and opens up something new uh, and, and you can do that uh, by telling a story and also changing it up I think that's really good that what you said with like locations not being static, like you, you yeah. something is happening where you come there. It just doesn't just sit around for you to to come come there and activate it. It's the same thing like when you do dungeon design, you want things to happen regardless of what the players are doing. So like in Elden Ring, okay, you come to this castle and there's a siege, or the um, the servants have you know rebelled and, and, and there's a mutiny going on, and that's very simple to do. It's like okay, you have a cool location, but just add something that's happening right now, uh, and then the players get in there in the mix of it, and yeah, have to pick sides or whatever. Yeah. And that works for random table encounters as well. Don't don't just put five orcs there. Put put five orcs who are hunting a rabbit or or whatever and you have a much more of a story rather than oh another five works show up around the corner what do you do uh, but have something else in there uh, and it makes it much more playable it's like it's like one of the one of my one encounter in Elden Ring that I remember was like very early in the game after you cross a bridge and you're on your way to a castle there's like a little <clears throat> there's like a place where there's a giant sitting there sleeping uh, 
and you don't have to approach it. You don't have to fight it. You know, you can just pass through as you can with a lot of enemies here. But, you know, of course I went up there to investigate, you know, what's this giant about? You know, maybe I could talk to him. And no, he killed me immediately. But you know, <laughs> like, that sort of thing where you have this huge monster and it's just sleeping there. You know, the players will definitely, you know, they, oh, not definitely, they might want to go check it out or they just might sneak around. But it's it's much more interesting, I think, to give them the choice of doing something and like getting the reins for a change. Yeah, it kind of also reminds me of like visual storytelling in uh, like Bethesda games and things like that, like Fallout, Skyrim and those kind of games. They're really into those kind of like place skeletons and interesting poses around the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, to you an know almost ridiculous talking. point. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. But yeah, it's kind of silly. I mean, most of it is kind of silly. It's like you have two skeletons and they're hugging each other in a bathtub and you're like, okay, they died in their yeah. arm it's kind of but i think it's i think there's a lesson to be learned in any way because it's it's really simple but it's pretty effective and I, i'm surprised mm. that so few tabletop like role-playing game adventures don't really utilize this more because you could you could just like place things but think of it visually in a dungeon room and you could probably tell a simple story uh with only a few quick strokes uh, and often you just like, often it's so vague uh, in in dungeon rooms that the players cannot really puzzle together what happened. So next time you you get the idea to place a, a painting or a mural or something depicting the story of the dungeon, place some skeletons around instead and try to exactly. do it that way. That's that's <laughs> the exactly. tip of the day. Yeah. <laughs> no, but for real, if you, I mean, just. I remember like um, Tomb of Horrors, you know, the classic adventure. There's a section there where you find a very alluring gem and there's a bunch of charred skeletons around it. Like that's that's perfect. Okay, so something happened here. Should we pick up this gem and do something with it? But, you know, these people, you know, caught on fire or something exploded here surrounding this gem. That's very simple. And also like the, the pit trap that has already been triggered. That's also a classic example of that where you have... I think maybe that's a visual storytelling, I don't know, or like environmental storytelling. Okay, there are pit traps here, someone triggered it, maybe there's a corpse of a you know, grave robber or whatever down there. But yeah, it's 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 a good thing. Yeah, and, and note that this will inevitably uh, include more skeletons in your adventures, which I think can only be a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Sneaky skeletons. I mean, yeah, that, that, that like, hugging skeleton is going to get up and hug you. <laughs> no, but because when you once you pass it and you look around, you know they're they're gone. The yeah, skeletons. Oh, that's good. Or one that's of them good. is gone. Yeah. Uh, there are other like environmental clues, and this is of course because I watched it recently. But it also reminds me of the Conan film uh, from the from the eighties. Uh, and how you can like dot the landscape with clues about the age of the world. And I think this is one of the things that uh, the From Software uh, uh, development team does incredibly well, is placing things in the world that gives it age. And uh, mm. there are layers to everything that is built. Uh, almost all environments have been used for something else previously. And this is a trope that is common in, in tabletop role-playing games as well, uh, but it's a really effective one. Like, uh, this used to be 
one thing, but then they built a castle upon it, and then the castle was cursed, and now a uh, goblin tribe moved into uh, the cursed castle on top of the um, old graveyard and, and stuff like that. And adding like layers and uh, clues of age to to your world will make it seem much more alive that you the world is not there uh, for the characters uh, uh, or the role playing uh, or the player characters it's there it has been there and they are just living through a period of it yeah and i mean i i, I personally was amazed when i found out with all these buildings that littered the landscape in the first area of the game where they came from it's kind of just blew my mind because when you start to you start to game off and it, you have these like upside crash down buildings everywhere these structures you you can't figure out what are these structures what were they for why did they collapse and you kind of just oh well it, it's kind of it's a fantasy game and it's i know it's weird and mysterious and then towards the end of the game, you just like, oh, that's where they're from, and, and yeah, that was that was a super cool mo- moment. I thought. Or when you read the wiki, <laughs> 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 which is which is let's be honest, the way that you you know get the story. That's like eighty <laughs> percent of discovery. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so also, if, you, if you're doing a if you're doing a game, you should you should do a wiki as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I refuse to use the wiki. I, I just watch more <laughs> videos on, on YouTube instead. Uh, yeah, that's or, even better, actually. Or maybe both. <laughs> no, but what you said there, Jonas, is very good. I think uh, how the world doesn't cater to the players. Like, it doesn't care about you. It's it, it just is. Things just are the way they are. And you happen to be there at that time. Uh, I think that's very good. Uh, and things that you can think about when designing games or adventures, you know, like... Don't think too much about the players. They will go in there and they will, you know, fuck around and do things and try things. But you don't have to, like, write it for them. Um, Or like when you're, you know, describing a world that you're making. Because kind of like what we did with Murakbori is like, we don't explain too much. It's just, you know, these are the different kingdoms or whatever. This is what's happening. But there's not much, like, hand-holding to it. And I think that makes a world seem more real regardless of how absurd it might be, but because it's not designed for you, evidently. Like, it's, yeah. So what do you guys think about like how to implement the discovery part of Elden Ring? Because f- for me, the greatest strength of Elden Ring was definitely in the, the like the discovery of it. Like you, you go in and you discover these landscapes, these mysterious sites, uh, these mountains and rivers and underground palaces and all these kind of things. It's kind of just, even if you were not too keen on like combat or story or anything like that, just these amazing vistas uh, and these mysterious like landscapes and sites it just drew you in you just had to explore it was just so explorable <laughs> uh, and i was i've been thinking a little bit about like how could you translate that into tabletop role playing like do you have to really like create a a super detailed world in which everything makes is like complete sense and it's so cohesive but then you run the risk of everything being fairly mundane and not that interesting to explore. I don't know. It's, it's tricky. I think one, one of my favorite moments uh, or, or most like 
memorable moments in, in Elden Ring was after I, I killed the Dragon King the dragon kin soldier or warrior or guard or whatever its name is uh, in the underground. Uh, and I actually had the time to look up and I saw this huge skeleton sitting on a huge throne in the uh, apparently much larger cave than I, than I really thought I had entered uh, down there. Uh, oh, and- yeah, yeah, yeah. This, the skeletal priestess. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, just sitting there and, and I didn't know if she's going to start moving now. And, and is, is, is this the next boss? Uh, or, or, and, and she just sits there. And I think that that sort of thing where you actually let something as big and cool as that be just there uh, and add something to, I mean... Uh, Zelda games or, or, or an open, more open world, um, uh, like classic style of game. An Assassin's Creed would put a collectible or something on top of her head and, and you yeah. have to figure out how to climb it. And, and you can do that in a role-playing game as well, but just let it be something cool to discover that isn't a threat, that isn't like uh, the... Uh, you don't find the key to to enter the next uh, room or to the biggest treasure um, there. It's just something there that exists for its own purpose that you can discover, that you can try to like, okay, what is this and how does it make sense? But don't make it important. Don't, don't make it the key, the, the, the one single clue you need to figure out the entire story or something. Just make it something uh, to discover. Uh, and I think that most of the FromSoft games are full of moments like that. I think that's really cool, If you, like, like you described it, that you were so preoccupied with the fight of this oh, yeah. giant monster that you didn't even realize that there was a giant fucking skeleton sitting on a huge throne. Like, that thing you can use in role-playing games as well when describing rooms. Like, if there is a room where there's a f- an unexpected fight, you know, maybe you don't even have to explain the, the huge scenery in there. That can be an, uh, uh, something that you reveal after the fight, you know, when the dust is settled. Like, oh, by the way, when you look up, you see this thing. So, so basically, what you what you should do is like the inverse of the stereotypically bad DM, where he he or she ex- like describes the entire room, and then oh, by the way, there's a dragon in the <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Movement, movement first, always. I think, or like threats first. But yeah, yeah. But that's I, th- cool. I think that's kind of interesting how much you can use your like your narration as a dungeon master to sort of direct the camera. Like like almost mm-hmm. like the virtual camera for for the players. It's like what what kind of things you notice. It's uh, I think it's an area where you can uh, probably experiment much much more than than one does. I think for open world wise, I mean the obvious <clears throat> way to encourage exploration and the sense of exploring would be to have uh, like landmarks that you see like yeah. two three hexes away. But yeah, yeah, yeah like that would be one way. Um, you have to I mean. It probably won't be as visually like uh, expressive or like impressive, I guess, as it is in a video game because you have to like rely on your own imagination or the GM's descriptions, which puts a lot of pressure on them. But uh, yeah, I think like mechanically, maybe that's one way to do it. 
Yeah, we should we should do an entire episode on like landscape description. <laughs> I feel sometimes <laughs> because it's super hard. Uh, yeah, trying to trying to like describe like valleys and mountains and how they connect with each other and, <laughs> and it's just I, 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 either it becomes like a di- like a diorama is like super small or like it doesn't make sense or yeah it's 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 hard yeah we're just sitting there with like a list of different uh, terrains so like okay so first you move through some forests and then there's some plains and then you actually cross a bridge and p- players are just sitting there okay well when do we reach the destination yeah and then there's yeah, a swamp that's... and then there's the dark forest and yeah yes <laughs> which way do you want to go left or right i don't know what difference does it make like just take me somewhere I think we should uh, come back to this topic when we're doing the inevitable Tolkien episode. But uh, <laughs> yes, uh, for sure, yeah. he was the master of that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, d- describing vistas is, of course, uh, I-, I have been thinking the same thing. Like, how can I bring, how can I use my voice and my narration to, as you so eloquently put it, direct the camera? Uh, because that is a thing that the game does really well is showing these incredible environments and uh, making sure that you as a player see things that you want to that excite you without putting markers on them mm-hmm. and there i've been thinking about like there are tricks you can do you can draw a compelling map or you can have rumor tables or um, uh, but th- i really feel that there is uh, a lot more that you probably can do to um, make the players feel like these points of interest look uh, interesting to us um, beyond just uh, using a, a map or, or rumors. But, but th- those are the most obvious ones that I, that I, that I find. But yeah, I, sh- I really want to work on my narration. That's what I felt after playing this game. How, how can I... Uh, display things in in my players minds and that also comes back it comes back to the monster design so there are incredible monster designs of course in these games that are so um impressive and scary and cool and things like that but they should you like there are so many approaches to this like if you're a gm and you have this really cool monster should you show a picture should you describe it abstractly and hope that the players are also able to construct something cool in their head should you use a miniature uh, like how how do you um make the players feel that the monster is as cool as you think in your head and this this applies even more to horror I think where showing pictures of a monster really just ruins the monster a lot of a lot of the time yeah no, it's very difficult. And also, like, how do you describe the movements and the mannerisms of it? Because that's one one way I really um, noticed when playing Elden Ring how hard monsters hit. Like, they, there's such, such force behind their attacks in, in the way that few other video games does. And so, like, how to describe that, I think, uh, yeah, you have to be pretty good at, ner- you know, narrating that sort of thing. Um or like just show the effects of it, yeah. And the fact when when someone is like one of the knights is just slowly walking towards you with, with their sword like held calmly in their hands and so on, and they're just walking towards you when you don't really know. Okay, this 
I'm not sure how to fight this, but it looks like this one will hit like hell uh, because it's just mm. like calm and then suddenly explodes in, in uh, one or uh, as often in Elden Ring, a hundred of attacks uh, quickly and, and you have no time to, to get out of the way uh, if you're too late. But yeah. I think that like one point that works for both or can work for both monsters and locations, I was thinking about one way back when we were running a DCC module uh, standing on the like courtyard of a, a castle or, or fort or something. Um, and the players had not entered any location, uh, but they gave the places nicknames because they were uh, kind of obvious so so there was like a, a bottomless pit and there was a really smelly well and there was the the door into the tower with the pentagram on top of it and uh, there was like the the door with the demon face on it so so they stood there discussing <laughs> should we go into the the stinking well or should we explore the bottomless pit or should we go into the pentagram tower or the or the demon tower uh, pretty much and that of course made it more interesting to discover and find things out and i think that if you actually name your monsters and don't aren't afraid to drop hints and and have at least rumors of the names and let the players and the characters know the names that hey that that this it's not just frost giants in these mountains it's the whatever Jorgur, or and the from software add a subtitle or or, or a title uh, to them, yeah. uh, the, the unending or whatever. Uh, you don't have to come up with more. You don't have to really know why they are called this, uh, because the the players will make something up uh, on their own. Uh, that might be better what you can come up with anyway, but but it will make them more interesting. Yeah, I, and I, I was also thinking about this when it comes to pictures of monsters, like descriptions, illustrations. I was thinking maybe a route would be to go more towards like in-world images of monsters. Like have things yeah. drawn the way that somebody who was like ha- like not very good but like a little bit talented living in that world and having seen that creature, so you you get a glimpse of it uh, as someone would see it, but it's still incomplete and it it doesn't com- convey the full monstrosity. <laughs> pardon <laughs> about the monster itself. So it's like you can kind of figure out it's something with. A lot of limbs and it might be like reptilian but when you meet then when you meet it the g so the, the gm adds a lot of more detail to it like now now you have smells and it's it's dripping fluids and it's doing all these kind of things so maybe that's a, um, a route to go down i i don't know it's more like in world descriptions and images possibly yeah i think they can work <clears throat> i usually try to um like compare it to real world things that the players might have seen or experienced like this big monster maybe it's like a big moose but like this and this and this or like it's it's as fast as you know this kind of animal or you know some point of references that everyone will get because uh, you know uh, my experience is that the, the the weirder you get when you explain something and the more outlandish and outworldly like the harder it is to actually grasp and to like understand 
what it is. So I have to have some sort of point of reference that is real. But then you can embark from that and go all sorts of crazy ways. But as, as long as you're not too prosaic about the descriptions, as in, no, I, I, want, I once read these uh, novelizations of, of like an aliens comic, <laughs> and the, the, yeah, it's really bad. And the author desc- ha- described the aliens as having banana-shaped heads. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yeah, that's not very scary unless you're super Possibly not the best that. metaphor. <laughs> Sorry. No. I mean, I can, I, I can see it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, obviously there are, there are banana shapes. There are, there are bananic. But yes. Bananic, yes. <laughs> now I just want to like, if, if you want to practice describing, uh, describing monsters and, and bring it back to to Elden Ring, try try to describe the. Uh, Astol, the natural born of the void, or whatever it's called. Uh, Which one is that? Uh, insect. No, now you're, you're now you're making me describe it. The, the insect life. <laughs> uh, uh, oh shit! Yeah, that one. Dragonfly, scarab thing, long limbed void kind of monster. That know? was. There's like smaller versions of that monster as well, like down in the underground, right? After you fight the like clay golem-like creatures and you come into this giant chamber with a bunch of ruins scattered about and there's this oh, one thing the, the one from the, the roof ceiling. yeah hang on yeah yeah it's kind yeah, of yeah i don't know yeah. what the fuck was going on when i entered that chamber i was like what the hell is this thing what is that and that's so cool because that's so out like that's so freakish like that's so i've never seen a monster like that before it doesn't resemble anything and it just works uh, i mean i was i had no idea how to even approach that how to fight it like what, what kind of attacks does it do i couldn't I couldn't like imagine it. So, if you can manage to do that in a, a, a theater of the mind space, that's really cool. Uh, but it's difficult unless you have some sort of visual aid. I think there, yeah. there's a lot of what the what the fuck monsters. In yeah. <laughs> there's like when you when you go down this like this path outside of like a volcano manor, and you go down and there's this like giant distorted disfigured elongated baby-like creature <laughs> it's like <laughs> vomiting things and you're like what the hell <laughs> but i that's that's such a great moment because you like you're repulsed um but you're also of course you're intrigued by it because you've never yeah. seen anything like it before so and as with a lot of other things it just sort of works in the lore and in the setting in ways that you might not be aware of at the time because when you are, when you first encounter it you're like what the hell what are the developers smoking when they're doing this it's just so random uh, like the and i think that's that's one way that you can make interesting worlds like if if you can have these at first sight kind of uh tonal shifty things that that doesn't really make sense but they do in the great, you know, in the grand scheme of things, like, like the what, turtle pope, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's not like, yeah, it just seems like a joke NPC, but it isn't, it really isn't. Yeah, and, uh, the, and those like trumpets blowing, kind of yeah, puffy the things. balls. <laughs> yeah, what, what, yeah, what the hell are those? <laughs> but they're it's so like marshmallow, eerie. marshmallow man. <laughs> yeah, but they're so eerie because they shouldn't be allowed to be in this setting because they're so yeah, yeah, they're so out there. And so I, can, I, I like that. It sort of breaks the expected setting and the expected tone. One of the worst which part is nice. of the games. Which one? The city? The, no, the, the, in the tree. 
with those. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, with those fuckers with with the constant <laughs> bubbling thing. Because when you find them in a city, you just can run up to do, to them, kill them, and, and yeah. one shot them, and then they turn into a problem later on. Uh, and I really, uh, yeah, hate that that part although like the the rest of the howling tree was amazing visually i thought one of the best designed areas of the game visually this the whole, city part or the uh, actually kind of both but like mm-hmm. the especially the tree part with its kind of um like uh fallen rivendell kind of vibe it's like this is rivendell after the fall it's been corrupted and it's like things hanging and overgrowth and those kind of things but you can still see this like remnants of this uh beautiful civilization there i thought i thought it was amazing did you guys go down way to the bottom of the capital like to, there's yeah, like a for ditch. Sure. Yeah, yeah for sure yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was also a pretty cool moment like after you fight this intestine worm creature thing and you go all the way in and you see this flat like skeletal head or like mummified head lying in the in a corner uh giant it's really cool um and it has some nice lore behind it as well apparently like i'm not very well versed in it but and also the worst jumping puzzle in the game <laughs> yeah uh, yeah with like the chasm that you had to jump yeah I, yeah. Oh, I yeah hated that thing ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was dope so um when we're talking about uh jumping puzzles and stuff like that uh, one thing that I really want to steal, but I don't know how from these games, is that they have incredible verticality in their dungeon designs. It's something that is... Uh, I, maybe it's just a lot easier to do in a video game, uh, but I would really like to borrow uh, the like three-dimensional approach to dungeon design uh, that, that these games have, because they are really good at the like interconnected thing in their dungeons that you can do like shortcuts and stuff. And uh, we should probably do an entire episode on how to do uh, dungeons in that way, like Jaquaying the dungeon. Um, shout outs to Janelle Jaquay. Uh, Janelle Jaquays, yeah. Uh, so when we're getting getting to the verticality, uh, verticality of, of the dungeon design, I think that is something that I would like to figure out how to do in tabletop role-playing games because there are... Yeah. Uh, partly the the drawing the map and maybe you can do like the um, uh, like Ravenloft with the isometric style map that you can dis- display uh, height differences uh, in the map but it's still really hard to convey the verticality to the players I think mm. uh, we're so used to uh, the two the sort of plane. Um, and I don't know really where that comes from is it because we draw our maps that way or are we generally thinking about the world that way or uh, i think it's really really tough to to get the it has to be like the classic dungeon like dungeon maps were 2d back in the day you know and that just sort of stuck i guess and i think that if you start doing like perspective 
maps and, and uh, isometric maps, you run into issues there as well. You have to design the dungeon. If you want to make one isometric map, you have to design the dungeon in a way that doesn't really make sense for, for a real-world location because otherwise you will have overlapping stuff uh, that, that mm. makes it kind of weird. I think isometric dungeon maps are, are kind of beautiful, but they also... It's like, but what's on the other side? Because there's, yeah, uh, it makes it a bit messed up. I think maybe one way to to approach the problem is to have, um, to, to have more open vertical shafts uh, in your dungeons. I was thinking a little bit about your dungeon, Christian, uh, the one that tower thingy with this like a tower a, hollow yeah yeah the tower hollow where there's this uh this stairs going down but you can kind of see the shafts like between the stairs all the time you can kind of almost see the next level when you're yeah. descending and maybe something like that you have like a large casimer shaft and you can you can look down and you see like oh there's there's a level down there and there's like a corridor going there etc uh Perhaps these vertical sections do not overlap, uh, but they still provide some kind of visual cue, like clue about what's going to happen next. So maybe that's one way to approach it to make it you kind of like a simple version of that. Mm. Yeah, because it's such a good thing as well to have verticality because it, it poses a different uh, like obstacle and challenge for the players how to traverse these, you know elevations or you know the descents or the ascents that they have to cross like i've done a few maps and a few dungeons that are just like side scrollers they're just like from the sides but you lose of course the whole the other uh plane like you lose the the top down view uh mm. but those are always fun to do when like okay so now you have to climb down or you have to you know get across this chasm so yeah if you could somehow mix those two that'd be pretty cool without them feeling like they're separate levels as well, because that's one thing I think about like Elden Ring as well. Like there aren't very distinct like levels that you move between the levels. They're so, they're much more like dynamic. Uh, and yeah, but that's, it's hard to, it's hard to describe in a map at least and hard for the players to sort of make sense and orient themselves in it. I tried so many times to to especially look at the the depths from from Dark Souls One, uh, and I try to like recreate that kind of thing um, in a role playing adventure, uh, and I always fail. And in some cases, it's just the fact because the depths. Um, if you haven't played Dark Souls One, there is a lot of verticality and there's overlapping levels and the levels are not like level one here and level two here because there's all kind of mixing up and, and half levels and, and small rooms hidden out that might as well be a separate level if you're t- thinking about the floor plan. Uh, and also the fact that you have, you see through a um, fence or, or whatever, you see some other part of the dungeon that you can't reach. Uh, and you can see down into holes where other parts where you can't reach right now, but but you will maybe you were al- already been there, or or you 
you will end up there. And then there's plenty of pits where you fall down from one level, not into a pit trap. Uh, you fall down into another level, into a group of monsters. So it turns into a trap, but it's also an actual way to traverse the level. Uh, because if you just kill those monsters, then, then maybe that's turned into a shortcut for you. And then there's actual shortcuts with finding keys and opening doors that you have run before, like uh, uh, run across before uh, and first of all the the issue is mapping and, and right drawing this as a map and get people to to understand what they're actually looking at and and what you can see from which room is is yeah. uh, that's a challenge it's it's a mess and it's really uh, difficult to do and also of course when you when you once you realize this when you're doing it in a role playing game uh, and you just remember that, oh, right, and my players recently got a scroll of fly, which means that this 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 entire thing will just be, they, they will skip that part. Uh, and that's fine, but it's that's also fine, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like, but they they are just gonna like destroy this this fence or, or bar, steel bars uh, and, and go past this. Uh, and doesn't make it as fun, or I guess it broke my vision of it. I think maybe one way to do it is like more of a point crawly thing, like instead of drawing each room and, exp- and exactly how they, you know, relate to each other. Maybe just do like okay, so the chasm and that leads to the narrow corridor and the crawlway, and you can see to the ruins. You know, more more, you know, not trying to draw it exactly how it is, but more like how they interconnect interconnect with each other. Mm-hmm could be one way I'm, yeah i've been more and more interested in like making dungeon point crawls because uh, you have like rooms and you have the connection between them that can be uh, an encounter as well like you can describe if it's a passageway or if it's a door or if it's a stair or whatever yeah might make it more but more easy to do these sort of thing yeah or or you just start out very very simple and like you start start out a very, like a very simple dungeon maybe maybe just has three levels uh and one two shafts or something like that and you start experimenting around that what, what can you get away with without like place being confused because i might i feel it might many when you create adventures you have these visions of how you want things to be and it might be a bit too ambitious at times maybe especially when it comes to verticality so i think the obvious thing about the souls games is that they can be mean and deadly uh, this is probably not we something we need to discuss too much. I think it's uh, uh, maybe over discussed in in a lot of forums and uh, overemphasized. And uh, um, yeah. but yeah, it, it it could be a fun topic to revisit uh, in a tabletop setting. Uh, is it okay to be mean towards your players and their characters? Uh, the answer is yes, but um, <laughs> uh, uh, but we could probably uh, have a pretty fun uh, uh, discussion on that. Uh, is there anything else that uh, uh, you think about when you think about Elden Ring that we should bring up here? I think that there, there's plenty. I mean, I'm 
everything I do is in, in part inspired by the Dark Souls game uh, because of, or Dark Souls games or from software games because I can't I can't get them out of my head. Uh, and it comes to armor, and it comes to spells, and it comes to weapons, and it comes to monsters, and so on, and, and environments, of course. But I think that that could be three separate episodes sometime in the future rather than than bringing up here uh, to be honest that's the thing about the fromsoft games though that they're they are masters of their craft so so yeah. th- th- these are like the best ones the best examples like of exploration on like <laughs> mystical settings and and armor and weapons and all of these kind of things so in, in a way it's a it's a high bar if you want to emulate uh, things that occur in FromSoft games, but on the other hand, well, why not be inspired by the best? Yeah, I think it's more about being like inspired and stealing good stuff than emulating. There's a, there's been a few games I've seen that tries to like be spe- like very specifically Souls-like role-playing games, and I think oftentimes they do it by being lethal, as you say, and that's it. And I think that's sort of missing the point in a, in a lot of ways. Like, that's not really what it's about. Like, that's one part of it, sure. Like, maybe if you mess up, you die. But, yeah, it's there's so much more to it. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, and if you want to look at an example on, on, on inspiration, I think that I gave you, for, for the uh, Sepulcher of the Swamp Witch adventure in uh, yeah. Heretic, I think I gave you, like, one art direction thing uh, and that was for the illustration of the actual Swamp Witch. And if you have played some from software games uh, and uh, have Heretic, you can just look at that picture and you will probably figure out what it is. I actually I actually wrote that down before we talked here, like Sepulcher of the Swamp Witch, because I think that dungeon is very, it's very clear where the inspiration is from. Uh, well, except the whole... Uh, swamp witch the musical inspiration <laughs> exactly. swamp, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but for that encounter and maybe also like the descent further down and the creatures there but but yeah it's it's a very um, uh it, i think tonally it's very in sync with the souls like games well um from one uh mystical and mythical journey to another uh let's get into our final short uh Segment and announcement. Uh, some of you guys are going on a quite a journey soon. Yes. And if you could talk more about that. Uh, not sure really how many there are of us, but uh, a bunch of us is are going to Gen Con. Uh, yeah, three people plus Pelle Nilsson uh, of Occult Archmaster Games. So yeah, it was gonna be it's gonna be a lot of us going across the ocean to the cursed lands of the Americas. So. Yeah, if you are at Gen Con, and if we manage to get this episode out before then, then uh, maybe yeah, maybe you'll maybe you'll see us there. And uh, I apologize beforehand, but it'll be it'll be fun. Yeah, and we will be hanging out uh, well all across the convention, but also have some sort of home base at the Free League uh, table, I guess. Uh, yeah. And we. We will also be part, uh, and the, the people who are going is Johan, uh, me, Christian, uh, Salian, that is, and uh, Kalle Nibleus uh, of, of Death in Space fame, um, among other things. Uh, and we will also be part of the Free League showcase, 
some sh- showcase. Yeah, basically we're gonna yeah. talk about our games there, and you can ask questions and so. On. But I think most of the time we'll just walk around, talking to people and hanging out. I guess I I might buy a game or two. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Uh, and who knows? When, yeah. Uh, when and where is the free league uh, thing? Uh, Good question. I don't know. We should, um, we should, I'm, I'm looking it up. If you're looking for games, if you could find that skateboard wizard game, can you just get me a copy of that? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. What, what was it called? Shout out to. It's called, uh, is it, is it skate, skate wizard? No. Uh, I think it was. Yes. Skate, skate wizards. wizards. <laughs> skate, skate wizards. <laughs> what is that game about skateboard and wizards? <laughs> that, is, wizards. that is correct. <laughs> Yeah, we have bootleg spells. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and the Free League Showcase uh, is on Friday at 3 o'clock. And it's for one hour and it's in room ICC 232. Uh, and there's like wow. 150 seats and you probably need to get tickets. I have no idea how this works. Um, but no, that, that's either. that's where it is. <clears throat> I tried to understand how you like buy your badges and book stuff on Gen Con, and it, I mean it's a bit tricky. So, uh, Gen Con, if you're listening, you can you can work on your UI or your UX. Someone else will get your badge you want. Uh, you don't have. Yes, to I know, but care, I try. But I know, but I try to understand. Yeah, yeah. You're you're joining me for for morning yoga on Friday, right? And with that, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's time to run. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see about that. Anyone got anything to add? 